This is the Baymaw Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we look at Jesus' time in Nazareth, pass briefly through the beheading of John the Baptist, and land in the story of feeding the 5,000. That's right. That's our goal. We got to get to the feeding of the 5,000 today. And that means I got to pick. We got three stories. I can only spend time in one of the first two. We got to roll. And we are, we are picking the Nazareth story. But before we jump into it, we, we got have a special guest today. Yet again. Dr. Christopher Gambino. Hello. Dr. Christopher Gambino. He's the most educated person we've had in this room. By far. <laughs> yeah. I pretty think. much. Yeah. And that's not to say anything negative or against any of the other people that we've had in the room, but that would include Brent Billings, myself. I don't know, Jim Fight. He's got a PhD from the School of Hard Knocks. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> That's for you, Jimbo. And Chris's counterpart actually has come before him earlier in session three. Absolutely, mm-hmm. Megan Gambino. Mm-hmm. Yep, they're they're two of the most Spitfire people I know. I feel like uh, in different ways, but absolutely, I'm I'm looking forward to what we get out of Chris in this episode. Yeah, this could see. be pretty good. All Buckle right. up, everybody. No telling where we're headed. <laughs> let's do it. All right. Uh, let's see here. Let's let's uh, dive right in. Every verse, right, Brent Billings? Every verse. Every verse. Uh, Chris is going to get us started here. He's going to read. Um, he's got the last bit of Matthew 13. Here we go. When Jesus had finished these parables, he left there. He went to his hometown and began to teach them in their synagogues, so that they were astonished and said, How did this wisdom and these miracles come to him? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother called Mary, and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, aren't they all with us? So where does he get all these things? And they were offended by him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. All right, now, Matthew really condenses this part of the story, um, and it could be that this is a different story. It, you know, as we talk about, we set out to not harmonize the Gospels, um, but as we talked about, every now and then you have that conversation of trying to take these different accounts and see which one is a part of the other. It, it's possible that these are two different accounts or two different events or two different visits to Nazareth, um, but it, I would, it reads to me that this is a condensed version of a more full version that we have in the Gospel of Luke. And so this is going to be one situation we're going to jump over to Luke. And so, Brent, if you uh, if you don't mind, how about you uh, read for us the Luke? Let's see, we've got Luke chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verse uh, 14 through, what, 30? Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Okay, so let's stop right there. So Jesus goes to his hometown, and we've talked about synagogue before, Brent, and I can't remember what we said. Can you remember, either from our podcast or previous discussions, what what special job does the rabbi have when he goes to synagogue? Ooh, that's a great question. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of a trick question. I was going to say, like... As far as reading, like the vast majority of what's happening there is reading the text uh-huh. and with a small bit of uh, commentary at the very end. Yes. Is, uh, I don't know if that's the necessarily rabbi, the rabbi's typical role. Right. Because actually there's only one synagogue where Jesus will actually read the text, the portion 
that is assigned him, and that's the synagogue he grew up in. What's interesting about the synagogue system was nobody had a spe- like rabbis were no more different than any other member of the community. The only synagogue that Jesus would have read in now now he goes to the synagogues to teach all the time, just in the building or after service. But as far as the liturgical service of your synagogue worship and the reading that happens there, the only synagogue that Jesus is going to read in is the one he grew up in in Nazareth. In fact, I would think that Jesus went back to Nazareth because he knew that it was his turn. Like he had been assigned the reading for that day. And in this case, it's the Haftarah reading. And if if you go back to that Luke podcast that we had, we talked about Parasha and Haftarah. And as we looked at M.D. Goulder's work, as he thought it surrounded, uh, as far as, uh, at least for us, our conversation around the Gospel of Luke. So there is a parasha reading that would have happened uh, every week. And that's and it would the have t- portion out of Torah. Portion out of Torah, the books of Moses. And it takes you through the books of Moses every... Chris knows this. Uh, how long does it take you to read through the books of Moses? They are set up to be read through in 52 weeks. 52 weeks, one year. One year's worth of reading gets you through the Torah, and that's your parasha reading. And then there's a second reading in every synagogue service, which is the haftarah. And the haftarah reading takes you on what kind of a cycle, Chris? I think it's about an every three-year cycle. Every three years. So every year you're going, you're going through the books of Moses, and every three years you're making it through the haftarah, which is the rest of the books of Tanakh, but not every verse. Um, and that will actually be relevant here in just a moment. But I asked Chris, he knew that, because, Chris, you have a blog. Tell us about this blog that you have. Yeah, it's a spinoff of uh, the roots and the tools that I got given here from the Bema folks and the, the, the leaders here. But it looks to um, take readers back to the text and go parsha by parsha, matching up, like Marty mentioned, M.D. Goulder's work, the Luke portions to the Torah portions. And so we're going, we're about to wrap up Exodus and we've got a 52 week cycle. So we got three more books to go, but every week is a Torah portion and we match it up to the Luke portion that MD Goulder cites. And we try to see what those connections look like. It's a Parsha blog and it uh, takes you, let's see, sustainingnow.com. Yep. And we'll have so, that link in the show notes as yeah, well. Link in the show notes, go check it out and go back to the very beginning. Cause there's like an overview of like how the blog operates and the four sections you run into every week and stuff. So go check that out. But I, that's why I thought, what an interesting week for Dr. Gambino to be sitting here with us in the podcast booth. Um, all right. So uh, go ahead, Brent, wherever you, you pick. Now, so he's handed Isaiah. So what, did he have the parasha assignment or did he have the haftarah assignment? Haftarah. He's got the haftarah because it's not the books of Moses, it's Isaiah. So he's handed the scroll of Isaiah for his assigned reading. And go ahead and pick up where you left off. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. Okay, now this is an interesting reading here, because we have not found a Haftarah record and there's two, there's two main Haftarah records. There's the Babylonian and there's the Palestinian record, the Jer- what they would call the Jerusalem. Uh, uh, J- Jerusalem, uh, I'm now blanking on the term that's used for it. But you have basically two versions of the Haftarah, two different. Um, um, the Babylonian and the Jerusalem Talmud? Yeah. Well, it, well, the assigned readings, which are they found in the Talmud? 
They might be. I'm not sure if they were or not. But there were kind of like along with the Babylonian and the Jerusalem Talmud, there was also their lectionary. That's what I was looking for. They had two different lectionaries. One, they're very similar, but they were also different. And Guler talks about that in his book if you ever get a chance to read it. But in neither of those that we, that we are aware of, and maybe there were more, but we don't know of any more. There's no reference to any other lectionary Haftarah readings. But none of them is the passage that Jesus reads a part of the Haftarah reading, which is so juicy to me because I want to know, like, was his portion just before this or just after it? Was this literally the only thing that he read? Or did Jesus, like, read his portion and when he was supposed to stop, did he just keep going? Or did he totally ignore the portion that was given to him and actually go to this section and read this like i would love to and and are these the only verses that he read because if these are literally the only verses he read not only are they not his assigned reading but he just chose like a very very select group of verses here to read and then kind of like mic drops synagogue style gives the scroll back and everybody's staring at him as he goes to sit down you got something brent i can tell well, I was just going to read on because oh, you're oh. you're uh, spoiling. Spoiling, yeah. Yeah, he's he's <laughs> giving me the eye like, quit talking, Marty. So he sat down uh, and then it says, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. There's your mic drop line right there. Yeah, absolutely. Whew. Which that, that says what we call the Derashah. I can't remember if we even talked about Derashah when we did our synagogue podcast, but the Derashah, same root word as drash. We've talked about drash. Uh, the Derashah is the short sermon, usually somewhere between 30 seconds and 90 seconds long. They read the text for 30, 40 minutes, and they give a 30 to 90 second sermon, which is the flip-flop of our experience in the Western world. But Jesus' sermon was, today... This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Right, there's that passage that we heard from, that statement we heard from Chris's portion, from Matthew. Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Okay, okay, I gotta interrupt you. Hold on a second. Because read that last verse again. All spoke well of him? Yeah, just that part right there, actually. All spoke well of him. Which is a really key part of this whole passage, and I find the part that we all just read over and don't catch. Matthew didn't give that impression when you read it. And yet in Luke, he, he does his—he goes to his hometown, he sets up shop—and see, the whole point in Matthew was, in a hometown, a prophet is not honored, right? And yet in Luke, he goes to his hometown, he basically says, I'm the guy— Like, I'm ushering in the Messianic age. Today, this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing, and everybody speaks well of him. Like, the synagogue was a buzz. Like, everybody kind of elbowing each other, like, yeah, that's our boy. It's Nazareth right there. By the way, Nazareth, Nazareth, was basically Shootville. Uh, When people say, can anything good come from Nazareth? Part of it is people viewed them with a disdain. Like, they had the arrogance to name their village Shootville in reference to the shoot. That would come out of Jesse's stump. They thought they were going to be the place that Messiah came from. And so everybody looked at that with kind of like this, ugh, those arrogant hillbillies over there in Nazareth. And so when Jesus says this, everybody seems to be, they're all on board. Okay, now now pick up where you left off, Brent. Yeah, I was just going to say the, so in Luke, it says they were amazed. And then they're like, wait a minute, isn't this Joseph's son? But through their amazement, they're saying that. But in the Matthew thing, it's like, it's so much more 
accusatory. Like, where did he get these powers? Isn't this the carpenter's son? What about, I mean, we know Mary, we know all these people. Aren't, aren't all the sisters here? Where did he get these things? And then it explicitly says, and they took offense at him. Right. So somehow we have to get to the offense here. So it must be here in Luke. So we'll keep reading here. Okay. See if we bump into it. We haven't bumped into it yet, though. Everybody loves him at this point. He's great. Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. All right. So he's like, yeah, you guys are loving this, right? You guys are all like, you're signing up for the mission trip, man. You're ready. Like you love this. You, you want to, you want to be there for this. You want me to do all the, the hometown miracles. Like you want the special hometown treatment. And Jesus is going to go on and say, that's not what I'm here to do. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephah in the region of Sidon. All right. So, uh, Chris, what is it that stands out, do you think, to the original hears there when he says this story. Of all the stories he could pick and choose, he quotes this story. And what do you think is the thing that jumps off the Well, one of the things that has jumped out to me as I read this in the past, and as we go further too, I think it, it ties into the next part that he adds in. But um, it, it seems as though what the, Jesus is talking about is an invitation to the Gentiles. It's a Gentile woman he's speaking of. Bingo. Like, absolutely. Like, when they hear this, like, they're wanting a bunch of hometown treatment. He's like, no, 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 no. Like, you want hometown treatment, but I tell you, Elijah didn't go to his hometown. Elijah went to Phoenicia and ran away to the pagans. Phoenicians, like, that's, like, really bad. They're, like, the capital of Baal worship. And he found a widow in Phoenicia to actually uh, heal and, and minister to. So it goes on, and there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And again, I think Chris alluded to that, the thing that jumps off the page there, a Syrian, a Phoenician, like this is, yeah, there, Jesus is like, I'm here doing a work for the outsiders. And again, Matthew's agenda being what, Brent? The mumser. The mumser, using in a poetic sense, like the outsider. Jesus is here for these outsiders. He says, you want the hometown, but you don't get it. Like, you don't understand what my, I'm here to pronounce this year, this year of Jubilee that he read from Isaiah, like the year of the Lord's favor. But I'm not here to pronounce it for you. I'm here to pronounce it for them. And now things change. Go ahead and finish out this passage, Brent. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. Which is how they, that's how you start a stoning. So they're taking him out to stone him. They're so furious about this. They grab him, they take him outside of town. And when you stone somebody, you tie up their hands and their feet. You, you, sometimes you'll hog tie them, was one term I've heard. And you can push them off of some high building or a cliff. And sometimes the fall itself will break a neck or basically kill them. And then everybody grabs a stone and you stand typically at, usually at the top of that ledge if you're, uh, close enough, and you can all throw one stone. Anybody that thinks they're guilty, after after the witnesses, you have to have two witnesses in order to do that. Uh, two witnesses have to um, bear witness against them, and then everybody gets one stone, and you get to throw it or drop it on the person. And if they survive, according to the Torah, they survive. And that's God's passing of his judgment. And if, if, he, if he dies, then that's God's judgment. So they've taken him out to stone him. But... But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. The Star Wars moment, right? It's beautiful, like Jesus just passes through the crowd. These are not the stones you're looking for. These are not. (laughs) (laughs) 
This is not the rabbi you're looking for. This is not the heretic you want. It, yeah, and we kind of like picture like Jesus like passing through and everybody trying to grab him, but nobody can. I, I don't think that's what takes place here at all. From a Jewish perspective, I think Jesus gets brought to the top of the to the top of this cliff, to the top of this ledge, to the top of this hill, and I think the very next move is somebody has to do what I just said. Two people have to do what to bear witness. Somebody has to tell what, what did he do? What has he done wrong? He's done nothing deserving of capital punishment. He's broken no law. People are super mad. Like people are ticked about what he said. They don't like hearing it at all, but he's done nothing wrong. So I picture Jesus just standing there like, and why are we here? Who's got, who has an accusation? Anybody? Nobody? And I picture him like motioning to his disciples, like, come on guys, let's go. And he just passes through the crowd because they can do nothing about it. As mad as they are. They can do nothing to him. So do you think the posture is more of, you guys know your text. Do you not realize the implications of what happened to it? Or is it like, you guys don't even know your text? Because if you did, you would realize what happened. Yeah, that's a good question. Maybe a little bit of both, maybe. Like, you know your text real well, but you don't really actually know it. Um, Because, I mean, this is a part of the Galilee. These are a part of, they would have a a synagogue there. They're going to train up their kids. Um, there's a lot of debate about what kind of people live in Nazareth. So, I mean, that could be a part of it. But um, these are going to be people of their Bible. They're going to know their Bible. And yet Jesus is going to say, you know your Bible. You just don't know. You don't know the mission. And and that's what he confronts them with. Yeah. And then you have the – so there's the layers of it, right? Because we're we're in Matthew and we're in Luke, right? And as as you talk about it, they're two very different audiences that we're engaging. So – why is it, to go back to it, why is it the Matthew text leaves it out? It's, right. a, it's almost as if the Matthew text, this story is just in that community or something, and they all know what's being referenced or something, whereas in the Luke account, you've got to retell the story in a way because whoever the Luke account is engaging might not be as familiar with this pivotal moment where Jesus mic-dropped it in the synagogue. Right, yeah, I've wondered that too because this story would fit the... Um, the the Mumser narrative quite well. So I was always curious why Matthew didn't put it in there and Luke did, but uh, absolutely. Uh, I've wondered that myself. I'll have to ask someday. Must be an addition (laughs) by, must be an addition by Luke. So who knows? Brent, take us back. We got some ground to cover. We're back in Matthew, right? Matthew Matthew 14. 14. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. All right, two passing comments here. I think uh, I see two things. Um, one of those is just the the authority, that that informal, because we don't have formal rabbis, that informal shmicha that John has. Like he has, he has the ear of the people, so much so that rulers, tetrarchs, kings are unwilling to touch him and harm him because they're so worried of what the people will do if they do that. And the reason that we have a problem here is, and like Herod Antipas has this weird relationship with John the Baptist, because we're told in other passages, like he loves to listen to him. He loves to talk to him. He loves to hear from him. And at the same time, John the Baptist is always like, you can't marry Philip's and people always are hung up on the divorce issue and those kind of things. For 
this is just straight out of Leviticus. Like you're taking your brother's wife and Leviticus says you can't do that because of how it robs, let let alone the women in this story. And we don't know, maybe the brother was all okay with it. Maybe the girl, the the woman here is okay with it. I don't understand. But Leviticus, John is confronting him. You are breaking Leviticus and the laws of Leviticus. I believe we're going to talk 18, Leviticus 18. So, so this is what's taking place here. This is the context here. So Herod Antipas, Herod the Tetrarch, same person? Uh, yes. Okay. Antipas is the one that got, um, uh, well, now I'm, Archelaus was the first one. But at this point, Archelaus has been dethroned, and I believe this is Antipas. And he was the one that was made um, Tetrarch. Uh, let's see, moving on in Matthew 14 here on Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked prompted by her mother. She said, give me here on a platter, the head of John the Baptist. The King was distressed, but because of his oaths and his and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on, on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. All right. Go ahead and read the very next verse, by the way. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. And again, I don't know if John the Baptist really is Jesus' rabbi, but if he got word that his teacher, his rabbi, had been beheaded by Herod, Jesus' response is, I've got to get away. I've got to create space for some grieving and some mourning. Um, and I just find that verse to be instructive yeah i'm i would say so yeah even if he wasn't the rabbi like they were still family yeah well we love to talk about the verse about how jesus wept with lazarus and we just sometimes overlook how many places we actually see the humanity of jesus and jesus modeling for us what it means to engage emotion and struggle and the just natural human experience so i love to point it out when we go past it all right let's finish this up with the feeding of the five thousand Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said, and he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about five thousand men, besides women and children. All right, so you got this famous story. We're all at least I'm assuming most of us are probably familiar. We've heard this story about this young boy with five loaves and two fish and his sack lunch and and uh, this Jesus that goes out to feed 5,000 people. Now, keep in mind, we just got done with a whole chapter on parables and this deep rabbinical teaching. And when we get to the story, I don't want us to lose that because every action that a rabbi, everything about a rabbi's life is instructive. It's all teaching. And so everything that Jesus does is with intention and with purpose. Jesus doesn't just heal an invalid flippantly just because he's moved to heal. And I don't want that to make it sound like Jesus is cold and callous, but there are a million invalids all around him all the time. Why does Jesus choose to 
heal this invalid and not that invalid, or to do this miracle and, on, and not that miracle. Jesus is a typical rabbi in that everything he does is do, done with an incredible level of rabbinical intentionality. Every move he makes, he makes on purpose. And there's a passage in John uh, that I, I love the little flavor adds. It doesn't add what the synoptic gospels have to this story. And there's not too many stories that are in all four gospels, but this actually is one of them. But there's a couple extra, couple. Uh, there's a flavor, there's a slant, there's an addition in John that I think really shows this point that I'm trying to make. So, Chris, you got John chapter six, I think it's five through six. Yep. Therefore, when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming toward him, he asked Philip, Where will we buy bread for the, so that these people can eat? He asked this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. All right. Jesus, this rabbi, has in mind, when he starts this process, what he wants to accomplish. This isn't just Jesus feeling sad because 5,000 people don't have dinner. This is Jesus wanting to do something again with his disciples. This isn't even about the crowds. This is about his disciples. And on some level, it's about Philip particularly. And this is what prompts him to do this. So Jesus already knows what he wants to do. And, and he brings his students um, in for this next lesson. Of course, we're familiar with this story. He tells the disciples to feed the crowd. They balk at the request, reporting that they have a, a measly five loaves and two fish from a, boy, a boy's sack lunch. Jesus responds to their counter with a counter of his own. He tells the people to sit down, blesses God for the provision, and begins to distribute the food to his disciples, who in turn distribute it to the people. And that's important. Um, now the reader is not told how the food grows or multiplies. I, I don't know. What do you what do you picture? Chris, what do you picture? Does he like cut off the end of the loaf and the other end gets bigger? Like... <laughs> I've always wondered like how this works. So they put like a napkin well, over it. Well, we know they have those baskets at the end, so I figure yeah. they're carrying around baskets, and they just like they're not they can't really see in the basket very yeah. well. They just like reach in, and every reach time in. they reach in, there's another loaf. Yeah, and they, it's and Mary Poppins bag. Yeah, oh, I like that. Oh, I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they every now and then they lift up in the they like lift up the covering of the basket to see like one loaf in there, but there's always one loaf in there. Yeah, I like that. Okay, I like that. Well, and the, I mean they're starting with seven items of food for 12 disciples to distribute like yeah like there's it's already right it already doesn't quite add up (laughs) nothing about this is making sense when they get started which by the way let's go all the way back to the very beginning brent what is it about this story that jumps out at us and it jumps out at us because we've been at this for quite a while but what is it in this story that you go oh hey there's a lot of what a lot of numbers there's a lot of numbers in this story and if we go all the way back to episode zero we went through the fact that numbers are important to the Eastern mind because numbers symbolize things. Numbers say things. Um, so uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put Chris on the spot here. Dr. Gambino, do you, uh, what can you remember about which numbers mean what things? Yeah, we've got a bunch of numbers in here. Um, and the first two, I think, are pretty telling on what they start with, right? They start with the basics. All you right. got five, and I'm gonna. I'm just gonna assume that's five books of Moses right there. Ooh, yes, you got it. Back to the basics, the five books, yep. and then they start with two things, and there's like a big two going on somewhere early in this story, uh, and it's it's found in those five books, but it's these two honking tablets. Even more basic. Yeah, even more basic. They just stone. You can't get more basic than two tablets of stone. Right. I like that. Okay, so we got some numbers. Let's while we're here, Brent. Let's actually review. Let's see what all can we can remember. The three of us, we can pull this off. 
Uh, well, really, that's the two of you. I'm putting you guys on the spot. One. What does one? What does one symbolize? Ichad. God. God. Perfect. Excellent. Uh, two. Chris told us was the tablets of Moses. Three. What does three symbolize? Community. Community. And they describe that different ways, whether it's Jacob or, excuse me, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the patriarchs, whether it's the Israelites, the Levites, and the Kohanim, the priests. Um, They have different ways of showing how threeness always symbolizes a communal aspect to whatever it is you're talking about. So three is community. Four. The Gentiles. Ah, okay. The four, four corners. Four corners. Four of corners, corners of the compass. Excellent. Right. North, south, east, west. Uh, four corners. That's the Gentiles are from everywhere but here. So those four corners represent the Gentiles. Uh, five. Chris already told us five books of Moses. Six is the number of sinful. I'm not even asking you guys anymore. <laughs> Six is the number of sinful man. Right. Okay. Dude, yeah. Hand me seven. Sa- do it. Seven. Seven pagan nations. Or that's absolutely seven pagan nations. Or on the other side, on the Hebrew side, what is seven? Completion. of, And we think of what story? Creation. Creation, right? The seven uh, days of seven creation. Seven days. All right? So seven has a, dual, has a dual meaning to it. It can go pagan. It can go Jewish. And then we might say things like, um, oh, ten. Ten is three plus seven. So what would that be? Brent, what is three? Uh, three is community. And complete, what is seven? Perfect community. All right, perfect. So we got, we've got complete community. Three plus seven would be? The completeness of seven, the community of three, you have complete community. And then when you have multiples of 10, it's just going to increase that. Um, And then 12, of course, makes me think of what? The 12 tribes. 12 tribes of Israel. So some of these numbers, by the way, are very Jewish numbers. Numbers like, um, obviously one, but two, tablets of Moses. Uh, Three is kind of like... It's kind of like, um, it can go either way. Uh, five is a Jewish number. Seven has a Jewish element to it for sure with creation. Uh, ten can go either way. Any of those communal numbers can be can go either direction. And then 12 is very Jewish. Those are very Jewish numbers. 12, uh, seven, five, two, very Jewish numbers. And some of those numbers are very Gentile, right? Four would be one, you said. Um and uh, you might say six at times would be a Gentile number. It's really just sin. It's really not Gentiles. It's just sin in general. So four is one. And then seven, Chris started right off the bat with that seven pagan nations. Joshua uh, chapter three, verse 10 uh, says that um, God said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go in there. I'm going to kick out these nations in front of you. And he lists the nations. And there are how many? Seven, right? Seven nations. That's where the seven has that. So there are these different Jewish and Gentile numbers. Now, let's take a look at those numbers again in the story that you read. This is a story full of Jewish numbers. Five, two, 1,000, which 1,000 is 10 times 10 times 10, which is really three tens. So it's just like community on steroids. 1,000 is a way of saying all of them, <laughs> in essence. Nobody's missing, Right. And if we apply this understanding to the story, look at what happens in the teaching of Jesus. Jesus takes the law, the five books of Moses, and the two tablets of Moses, which, by the way, five plus two equals seven. Seven. He takes all of the law. The complete law. The complete law. Uh, thank you. Wonderful way of saying that. He takes the complete law, and he gives it to his disciples. His disciples feed the people of God. They take the law given to them by Jesus. And they feed the people of God, the Jewish people, by the way, the 5,000, 5,000, so that's 1,000 times 5. It's the whole community of what, Chris? Torah believers? Torah people. It's a whole community of Torah. We've got Jewish, and by the way, he's in the triangle, so that's who's there. This happens uh, 
by the way, P.S., this story happens in the same location that traditionally the Sermon on the Mount takes place, that place that we called in one of our podcasts, Aremos Tapos. It's the tradition. There's actually the Church of the Beatitudes that sits on top of the hill, and tradition puts it there. A couple main theories of where it could have happened, but that's the best one and is my favorite and the one that I think is correct. So Jesus has got 5,000 people. So he's got the people of the Torah. He takes the law, this, this law of Torah. He gives it to his disciples who give it to his people. And when the people take and eat the law that they receive from Jesus, there is more than enough for how many baskets do they pick up? Twelve. Twelve baskets. There's enough for everybody. So in essence, you could say Jesus's larger teaching point seems to be, I am, by the way, why does he go up on a mountain? Well, it doesn't really say a mountain. Ramos Tapas was the Sermon on the Mount. That's a stretch for me. I shouldn't have actually gone there. That's my, my little tidbit. I'm adding that. Jesus goes up on this mount. He takes law and he brings it down and gives it to the people. They sit in groups of what, Brent? He has them sit down, or Chris, he says it has to sit down in groups of, what's the size of the groups? Uh, does it say? I don't know if it said in Matthew. It says no, in other stories. I don't stories. think it does. Okay. He has them sit down in groups of 50 in other stories, which is exactly what happens with Jethro, right? At si- This is a whole retelling of Moses. So in essence, Jesus could be saying, I am the second Moses. Uh, so Jesus could be saying, at his larger teaching point, seems to be here, I am the second Moses. When you let me interpret the law and completely trust me with it, there is more than enough to go around for all of God's people. Now, you don't have to buy this number business quite yet if you're like, oh, man, that's a total stretch. Usually when I teach this, when I'm going around and talking to college students or different people around the country, like I do this lesson and people are just like wide-eyed, kind of that brain exploding moment of, oh, my goodness. But there is always some people that are like, I don't know, that's a stretch. That's okay. Hold on to this for a few more podcasts and uh, let's get to a couple more stories and see if you actually think this is this is taking place. On that note, I I don't know if this was just me growing up, but for a very long time, an embarrassingly long time, perhaps. And maybe because I got into this discussion of harmonies and whatever, but for the longest time I was like, does Jesus just feed random crowds of people? Uh, Was it one time 4,000 and another time 5,000 or were they the same thing? And one disciple was just like a little bit around the corner and couldn't see a thousand people behind a little hill. Right. Because there's another story, right? Right. There's another story. And they are, I just want to say, they are distinct stories. They are. And so perhaps if you want to jump ahead a little bit. and and, and, little uh, homework. Yeah. A a mini Haggah project, perhaps. I like that. I like that. Good call, Mr. Billings. And we'll get to it because every verse. Yeah, absolutely. Every verse. Um, There is one uh, just kind of passing note, not really in line with the same string of thought that I had, but before we got done... One of the points that I loved that Ray did when I learned this in Israel for the first time, and then every time that I was with him when he teaches on this, he gets done with his teaching and he says, everybody gets wound up about the miracle. And he says, how many of you believe that a miracle like happened that day on this hillside? And everybody raises their hand, of course, or at least most people do. And then he says, and, and how many people have ever worried about like where their daily provision is going to come from what's around the next bend of course everybody's hand goes up and he says then who cares if you believe that a miracle happened like if there's no like if like all the demons he he has a statement he says all the demons that were on that hillside believe that jesus did a miracle that day and they shudder like to 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 reference james like what what good is it if we believe that a miracle happened if it doesn't actually change the way that we live? 
um, I've always found that to be a comment when I study the story. I always think about on that hillside of we get really wound up about the accuracy and the infallibility and the this and that of the story. And I know people sometimes walk away going, wait a minute, do you actually believe he fed 5,000? Well, sure. But the better question is, do you believe he fed 5,000 people? And does it make a difference in the way that you live your life when you walk off of the next hillside that you walk off of in your life? Um, do you believe that God is there to provide? Do you believe that his teaching is enough? Do you believe that when you let him interpret the law and trust in his way of reading the world, uh, that he's got enough to go around for all of God's people? Um, so it's always a little a little tidbit I've taken with me. but Unrelated, but a good one. And I figured I would close with that. Dr. Gambino, you got anything for us? Anything else rumbling around there? I looked back at Exodus a little bit, and it, it really does look like these things match up quite a bit with what uh, Moses is doing back there. So Absolutely. I, there's an invitation back there, an invitation forward to the next feeding, but also an invitation back to look at what's going on in the Exodus storyline, which is a whole lot to do with Moses going up and down a mountain several times, a couple of doses of tablets in there. Yep. And then a particular moment where Moses assembles the entire community of Israelites. And I think that's pointed to this story here. He's the, and, it, and the rabbis point to that. They say, this is men, women, and children. This is everyone. Yes, absolutely. And there, man, you say that there are more parallels in the story to that. Absolutely. And which makes me think of it's not only is this in the text as it always is, Mr. Billings, but it makes me think of there are even other stories that I would want to think of, like Elijah or Elisha. Boy, now I just got confused. I think it's Elisha feeds 100 people, which is a measly group of people compared to 5,000. But this story has somewhat happened before where Elisha has done the same thing. So there are things in the text that any Jewish reader would have looked back on and went, wait a minute. Well, that's, that's like this. And so to go backwards and look at that, because everything a rabbi does is always in the text. That's and all I got. Didn't he just reference? Oh, I guess that was in that was in the Luke portion. Ah. But he referenced Elisha. Yes. And Elijah. Yep. That's good. Good little right. connect. Well, for more on uh, what Chris was just talking about, check out his website, sustainingnow.com, the Shuvah Project. He's also sustaining now on Twitter. Get in touch with them. Tell them everything that you think about whatever. All right. Thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.